Welcome to Spinning Aaron's Tale. My name is Blair. My name is Denise. And this is a podcast brought to you by you and I, Yarns and Jehalis, Washington, about fiber arts, history, and culture. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Europe, but not Europe as a whole, because we have kind of broken it down into Central Europe, um, England, Scotland, Ireland. Um, but before we get into that, why don't we talk about what we've been doing this week. So what are you working on, Denise? So I have kind of changed my projects around a little bit. I've dropped all my knitting and I'm crocheting a baby blanket. Um, it just came to me and now I have to do it. It it grabbed you and you couldn't break it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, well, it's hey, how it's, it works. Crochet is a valid fiber art and it's fun. I crochet too. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of fun. I'm learning new stitches and stuff and... Um, uh, and it's going to be useful once, once the baby's once born. The baby's born. So yeah. that's fun. Um, what are you working on? Uh, right now I have in front of me two sleeves that I'm knitting at the same time on a colorwork sweater. It's the Hopi pattern by, I, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the person. We'll put it in, I'll link the pattern in the show notes. That way you can find it. But it's a beautiful bottom up construction sweater. Uh, it's done in a traditional Icelandic style, I think. Nice. Um, where you knit the bottom, then you knit the sleeves, and you attach the sleeves by knitting them onto the body, and then you knit the yoke. Yeah, that's great. Nice. Yeah. Good technique. It's been interesting. I've never done this before, so it's definitely a learning experience, but cool. I'm having fun. Yeah, nice. Looks good. Thank you. Don't ask. Don't do it. <laughs> When do you think it's going to be done? Uh, you asked anyway. I don't know. Don't ask me that. I don't know when it's going to be done. It's going to look amazing, though. It will it's gonna be look great. so good when it's done. And you're making that for the store? Yeah, I am. I'm knitting this as a sample for you and I. Nice. Yeah. So people can check it out once it's actually done. Yeah, come in and visit us. <laughs> we have a lot of beautiful samples in the store. Yeah, so I even love... if mine's not there, you will be pleased to see many other things. Yes. Um, but why don't we switch gears and continue on talking about our topic this week? So why don't we start with England? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. You know a little bit more about England than I do, since it's what you spent most of your time researching and I studied a different area. Mm -hmm. Why don't you get us started? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so for England, um, we've gone over the brief history of knitting last time, last podcast. So now we're going to specifically look at England and in England, knitting was not necessarily very popular, um, during the middle ages. So like knitting as, as a, as a craft only took off later around the 16th century, um, and the first knitted items that were found in England were caps, and then later came stockings. So this was kind of around the Tudor era, like 1500s is yes. when you're talking about. Yes, exactly. And it's kind of when Elizabeth I started reigning um, that um, knitting really took off. I don't know if it's anything to do with her necessarily, but just, yeah, that's when... Uh, knitting became more popular. I do know that she received a pair of silk stockings. Yes. So, like, ar around that time, stockings, of course, were being knit because they're practical items, but stockings for luxury weren't quite a thing yet. 
So when Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth the first, uh, got a pair of silk stockings as a gift, it kind of became a thing in high society to want to like emulate that. Yes. So women started knitting more silk stockings. Yes. Yeah, and it's actually interesting because I think one of her maids or something made her these stockings and um Elizabeth was so like in love with the stockings that she asked her to get get her some more and then the maid was like no no I made those for you like something like that really I didn't <laughs> yeah. know that yeah so that I read that somewhere I think in Richard Rutt's um book about knitting hand knitting history um so that's a really fun side story to that's that that's a little interesting fun fact yeah so the royalty wasn't knitting at that point it was all their servants doing it for them um mostly yes they were not really knitting themselves um and it wasn't very um popular for the poorer people either that came a little bit later so like halfway through elizabeth's reign um knitting schools were set up and that's where people were actually taught to knit and children were taught to knit because knitting was considered a good pastime to keep people off the streets and out of trouble and for poorer families to earn just a little bit more money on the side. Yeah, and that kind of talks, that kind of talks, comes back to what we were talking about last week about like um, the, the parish, the church, and how they were teaching people to knit. So yeah. I believe they ha- they hosted a lot of knitting schools so you could go to your local church and you would learn from the nuns yeah. how to knit. Yeah, exactly. Um and that really helped make knitting more popular too in in England specifically. Um and then later the knitting frame was invented at the end of the 16th century, so around 1589. And um, it was interesting how that wasn't actually a very great development. Like, knitting frame was not really a popular um, thing when it was just invented. And this had several reasons. Um, Because hand knitters were still um, faster to be... They were better at adapting to fashion changes in those days because a knitted frame had to be set up a certain way, apparently. Um, and so hand knitters could still, you know, change their mind, put something else on their needles, and just like we do, and change the, uh, the projects that they're working on. And besides that, um, it was cheaper to hand knit, of course. You didn't need a knitting frame. You just needed needles and some yarn. And back in those days, a knitting frame would make about 10 stockings, uh, p- 10 pairs of stockings per week. And a hand knitter could do six pairs. So like, it wasn't really even that much faster, and it was yeah. a lot more work. Yeah, exactly. And I do know that along with the knitting frame came about the invention of the, um, we know them as I cord machines. Yes. And those were given to children a lot of the time because it was a fast way to use cotton thread to make things like reins and like rope and stuff that would be useful around the house. And so a mom would be knitting and they would just give their child this little, there you go, here you go. And it was, it wasn't as mechanical as we know now. It didn't have like a turn. So it was really, really similar to the knitting frames where you would have it and you would wrap it around knobs around the outside and you would use like a hook 
to yeah wrap Flip. the yarn yeah. and like knock Flip off the over. stitches yeah just had like four pegs or something it was just four it was sided. it was like yeah. four to six i think yeah. something like that yeah. yeah yeah it was a really useful uh practical tool that people a lot of people like i said had in their homes and it was easy to give to a child because it was hard to mess up and super easy to replicate and just do over and over and over and over again which is kind of like um it kind of leads into the fact that around this time recipes knitting recipes were starting to be made right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah the first knitting recipe was actually published in 1655 or at least the first one that we still have on record um and they uh were knitting recipes for garments garments yeah were they like printed or do you like printing press printed oh okay that's really cool yeah yeah so that's around that time and that's when you see knitting becoming more popular for more people because it's easy to replicate something once you know the steps yeah and these recipes i think it's important to to say this aren't patterns as we know them yeah they're very much a recipe kind of like the easiest way to equate it to something modern day would be a sock recipe people who knit a lot of socks they have their own sock recipe and that's how they make the same socks over Over and and over and over again but it's easy to change for say like I my sock is not going to fit my dad's foot so if I knit a sock for me I can take my base recipe and plug in some numbers and then have one for my dad's foot it's something similar to that yeah definitely um and that's also around the same time that rural knitting was um, most popular I would say so would you say before that knitting was more centralized in populated locations and people out in like farmland weren't knitting as much um they were but i think there was like a high um like a peak point for rural knitting where it was most popular and where it was most sought after i guess i could see that because if you're living far away and the only way for you to make money because you don't live in a city is to like your animals and what if your animals aren't doing that great or what if your crops fail yeah well, you can knit a bunch of socks, but yeah. you need these recipes. Yeah. Yeah, and sell. it was something that you could do after all your farm chores. Yeah, because you could knit by candlelight. Yeah. It might not be so fun, but you could do it. Yeah, they were used to it. So for them, it was, you, you know, know. I have my neck lamp. I'm spoiled. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I I'm need spoiled. one of those. <laughs> I'm blind. <laughs> blind. But so this the rural, back to the rural knitting. Was it any different? Than like knitting in cities, do you think? Um, so there are a few examples that we know, like um, the knitting tradition in the Dills of Yorkshire, that were very specifically that are very specifically known for their rural knitting culture. Um, they would have a lot of farmers and farmers' wives and kids who would gather at the end of the day in one household. So one person was paying for gas, basically. Like one person was paying for the, for the um, the lamplight, the coals. Yeah, the lamplight that they were using. They were just knitting by the fire, literally. Um, and so one household was paying for one night, and then they would all knit in a circle, kind of, and um, would even sing like knitting songs that resemble like nursery rhymes to keep track of rows, for example. Oh, that's an interesting way to do it. Yeah, because like 
most common people wouldn't just have tons of paper laying around. They can't just make tally yeah. marks over and over and over again yeah. like we do now. I'd be lost without my paper. <laughs> I know, me too. I'd be yeah. like, where am I? <laughs> where am I? Um, yeah, that's that's kind of how they did it. I mean, people get inventive when they need When you something. don't have much to work with, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was probably popular in rural areas because, like you said, they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's not a lot to do after farm work gets done. And in yeah. the winter, the nights are so long. What do you do? Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I do know that there's a saying about these knitters out in the Dales. What is it? They're called the terrible knitters of Dent. <laughs> Why are they so terrible? Um, there, there is a story about some girls going to school. Because they had knitting schools there, too. And they were owned by farmers. Um, but there were, I think there were two girls, maybe sisters who, um, did not enjoy the knitting, but they were forced to, to knit anyway. And so, um, it even, it even is known that when kids were too slow with knitting or yeah, if they weren't motivated to knit, then they would actually just be whipped. Um, oh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh, to encourage more knitting or faster knitting, I guess. And um, I think that's part of the reason why they were called the Terrible Knitters of Dent. They were yeah. really rough, huh? Yeah. Rough and tumble. It wasn't just like, oh, Timmy, you messed up. That's so sad. It was no, oh, yeah. my, oh my God, Timmy, you messed up, and now we can't eat for the week. This cost us a dinner. Yeah, exactly. And so they took it really, really seriously, and the punishments were really heavy. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yep. I don't know if I could do that. Me neither. I you can barely finish a sleeve. Excuse time. me. You don't need to bring that up and embarrass me every time. Um, but these these knitters actually also found a technique to make their knitting faster, which we can kind of in, go into a little bit. Um, their knitting technique was called swaving. Um, and somebody says it's coming from seesaw, like the the oh. playground thing where it goes up and down. Oh yeah, because that makes sense. Because what swaving is, it's a knitting technique, and they have a belt, and usually it has a, a sheath, which is just a hollow tube. Sometimes it was made out of wood, sometimes it was made out of bone, and you would put these long needles into it, and that's what you would knit off of. So you could you would basically just hold the needle under your armpit. And then your hands would do this pumping motion to move your stitches along. And it was it was way faster than standard knitting at the time. Because most people in England were English knitters, of course. So they, they threw. They threw their yarn instead of uh, continental, which came about from Germany. We'll talk about that later um, in a different episode. So this the swaving was just... It was the fastest way to do things and so the up and down motion i can see how that would be yeah like equated to a seesaw yeah exactly yeah and it would actually help people too because they would have one hand that was free to turn the butter or attend to the kids or whatever else um so they could be knitting and doing something else at the same time yeah multitasking at the at the at its finest yeah on another level <laughs> i cannot do that <laughs> oh gosh yeah i i still want to try the swaving though i we, do too we really should I, we'll have to see if we can get a hold of some knitting sheets yeah i know good. they're not super popular here in america so we'll have to see if we can 
I don't think they're popular anywhere at this point. No, 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 no. They're still popular in places like Shetland. Really? Hmm. Oh. We'll have to look into that a little bit next week, maybe. Next week. <laughs> um, so to kind of end the story about the rural knitting on a darker tone <laughs> is the knitting, the rural knitting was in decline at the end of the 18th century. We're kind of making a little bit of a time jump. Um, but at the end of the 18th century, rural knitting was kind of in decline, except for in the region that we just talked about, um, in the Yorkshire Dales. So that's good news. They were still knitting tons and tons and tons of stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's probably because that's where a lot of the sheep were. A lot of sheep in England were... Yeah, honestly, yeah. Uh, they were raised on mountainy land, so it was never super, super flat. It was always kind of up and down and up and down and full of rocks. Yeah. And the dales were pretty good for that. Yeah. Yeah, and like shepherds um, would knit while, you know, tending to their sheep too and herding their sheep. Or drop spindling. Drop spindling was really, really big. Yeah. I can't remember if it's top or bottom world, but one of them was really popular. I don't know either. In England. I know Scotland has a different a different spindle. Yeah. But um, in England... Spinning while walking was just as common as knitting while walking. Yeah. Because you had to have the yarn to to knit if you wanted to. Exactly, yeah. Um, But also, a lot of women from the Dales and in Dent, they purchased their their yarn. Yeah. And a lot of people would send them yarn and money and be like, here's the yarn, here's the money, make me things. Yeah. And that's how kind of their business flourished. Yeah. Uh, And... Through that time, of course, through the industrial evolution or revolution, um, the places for people to have farms were declining. So sheep and wool was actually coming, becoming harder and harder to come by at that point in time. A lot of wool was actually imported. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because um, around that same time drawing room knitting so knitting for ladies became more popular and that was mostly done with finer wools like an imported german merino wool yeah because when we say ladies we're not saying just like women we're saying the upper class yeah like the lady of the house Mm -hmm. type of lady yes um and this is around the time where knitting becomes less of a mandatory staple because of the industrial revolution like we said and more of like a a hobby yeah people aren't doing it to survive anymore because you can buy machine knitted objects cheaper yeah yeah it's more like delicate like pin cushions with finer yarns lace that kind of stuff fine shawls yeah decorative stockings with frilly cuffs yeah things like that Mm-hmm. And from there on came the First World War, kind of. Oh, And yeah. that's suddenly when knitting became really relevant again, because women could knit for the soldiers who were at war and who were cold. Yeah. <laughs> and things were breaking all the time. And you don't want to get trench foot. You don't. You so really don't. So lots of fresh socks was like, I'm not... I'm not saying that as a joke, like trench foot was a serious issue for them. 
So having lots of socks that were water wicking and that you could change out of like almost on a bi-hourly basis was really important. Yeah. Um, it's when the Red Cross f- formed a knitting, uh, what's it called? Initiative. They formed an initiative, basically. Mm-hmm. They would give people yarn for free and say, please just knit us some socks. Please, we're begging you. Yeah. But the downside is because knitting had become such a, just like a hobby thing for like the upper class, most women didn't know how to knit socks. Yep. They were sending in socks that were like three feet long in the foot and like an inch high (laughs) on the ankle. And they were like, yeah, this is my sock. Um, And it got so bad that people actually started asking to not send in (laughs) socks and stuff like that. And they had hired professional, what they call pickers, where if a messed up sock came in, they would sit down, hand it to this woman. She would undo the entire sock and remit it within like an hour. And then it would be something that the soldiers could wear. But they also had to pay these women. So it was like really like, please stop sending in messed up socks. Yeah. But that's also where the knitting, this, uh, the circular sock machine came from. I believe it was mm-hmm. invented... I want to say it was in one of the world wars um, for, and they gave them out for free. Well, it must've been the first one. Cause the second one was more on like how to use things economically. Cause there wasn't enough stuff. Yeah. Enough. And so they gave out these, these circular sock machines to women to basically give them. And they would just tell them crank it so many times. Bind off the toe, bind off the cuff, send it in. You have a sock. Done. Um, kind of where tube socks came from, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that was that was really interesting. It was really shameful for the women who couldn't really knit very well. Yeah. Yeah, but at this time also patterns were much more popular. Patterns became a thing in like the mid, I want to say, 1700s? Where the first printed book of patterns actually was printed in England, I think. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So women had patterns to follow, but these patterns were always in everyone's individual shorthand. Yeah. So, like, nothing was standardized. You couldn't say, like, a slip one with yarn in front, which would be S-1-W-Y-F. And it's that didn't exist. Yeah. So it would just be, like, random, like... Uh, acronyms for things and every person's was different so every book was different you basically just had to decode it and be like okay well this means this i guess and it was kind of crazy it was yeah yeah it was is that kind of everything you have for for england do you think yeah so i do have two more things for england that happened after the first world war that we can kind of touch on for a little bit um First of all, we had the 1920s, uh, also known as the jumper craze, uh, probably related back to your your pattern book popularity is, you know, people started knitting jumpers like crazy. Um, yeah, and it wasn't, wasn't it because like a, one of the kings at the time got a Fair Isle sweater and everybody was like, I want that. It was fashionable, yep. Yeah? Yeah. So that happened in the 20s, which is... Um, you know, good to mention. 
And then the Second World War happened, and that's kind of where things flipped around. Knitting was not that popular anymore um, because there was not a lot of wool available. And people had to economically think of how to knit for their soldiers and their families. Um, which, yeah. Because a lot hard. of factories at that time. So when there was World War II, there were shortages in everything. Yeah. Because a lot of factories were turned into, like, bullet factories. Yeah, exactly. And things that would support the war effort. Um, so the factories that were oftentimes used for making clothes were shut down. People just weren't making clothes. So it became a thing for people to pick up knitting for themselves again just to get back. Yeah. And also to support their troops. Exactly. Yeah, but it was way harder to do it this time around, and they didn't have the same initiatives as in the First um, World War. So that's kind of where knitting already declined once again, and then just the industrial, the industrialization of knitting became way more of a thing after the first, or the Second World War, um, and so knitting was not necessary. It was really just a hobby for. Um, for people yeah and that's kind of where it lands us today where it's no longer it's still no longer like a necessity um it's really about just having having a hobby and it's really become more of an art form which calls back to the the days of like knitting artisan guilds yeah so a lot of people make art with their knitting which is really cool yeah definitely but from there we're going to move on to england's close neighbor yeah Scotland. Because I feel like they might have a more rich modern culture as well. They do have a richer modern culture. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things are still quite the same. Um, what is happening in Scotland? Well, if we take a step back in time, um, back to the 15th century, we have the formation of knitting guilds specifically for bonnets. Mm. And what bonnets are, are they ac they're actually tams. Um, what are tams? Tams are a hat. What kind of hat? Okay, well, if you think about a hat, like a beret, mm -hmm. and then a hat that looks like kind of like a beanie. Yeah. And they love each other very much, and they have a baby. <laughs> that is what a tam looks like. Oh, okay. It's, it's got a brim to it, and it's kind of flat on top, but not super flat. Mm -hmm. And they were really popular because, and this is why they built the guilds, um, they're really popular for out, outdoors wear because they're really good against the elements. Yeah. Um, they're not typically felted at this time, but that does happen naturally over time for them because it is kind of rainy in Scotland kinda. a lot. Yeah. The weather is a little wonky. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I don't have anything to say on that because we live in Washington and it rains nine months out of the year, so... Yeah, we'd have felted hats, too. If we... <laughs> yeah, before the invention of superwash. <laughs> they didn't have acrylic yarn back then? Oh, I know. Yeah, they didn't go to the Michaels. Um, but these, these tams were really popular, and they were worn by everybody. So they were worn by the upper class and the lower class. But the distinction between the two is that the upper class had finer wool, mm -hmm. so softer, thinner... More beautiful, quote-unquote, 
And the poorer people had coarser wool. Basically, whatever they could grow on their own. Yeah. And whatever they didn't sell to make money. Makes sense. Um, and they were very, very popular, which is why we see them all the time. And why we, when we knit and we think of Fair Isle, we often think of tans for hats. Mm-hmm. And it's, they're really cool. But at this time, these guilds are made to export them. So they're going everywhere, all over Scotland. They're going to places like Ireland. They're going to places like England. And this leads to England going, well, not, not, not directly, but England goes, oh, yeah, Scotland's pretty great. They are. I want to take that. <laughs> and so at this time, Scot- uh, Scotland starts being taken over by the British, and there's a ban on their traditional garb. So plaids, tartan, kilts, things like that. They're not allowed to wear them. Yeah. And if they are seen wearing them, they get thrown into jail. Which is really, really rough. Yeah, you don't want that. Don't want that. So at this time, their kind their priorities in knitting change. And they're learning to knit things like sweaters and practical items that they can wear to fit into this English occupational standard. Yeah. All these men, because at this point, women are not knitting. Of course they aren't. They are considered not dexterous enough to knit. And it is a men's craft. That's just weird to me. It is so strange to think about from a modern standpoint because now it's totally flipped on its head. Everybody thinks it's like a woman's job to do the knitting, which isn't true. Yeah, no. Anybody can knit and everybody should knit. It is so strange to think about. At one point, men were like, haha, you cannot knit because you are just a lowly woman. Well, with anything. Yeah. And... It's like, oh, they're not dexterous enough. They can't lift the yarn. They can't do these crazy hand movements. Delicate fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Except, like, none of them were delicate. They were all doing farm work. So, like, it doesn't make sense. No. In my eyes. But back then it did. But after this occupation kind of comes to a close and Scotland gets their land back, not all of it, but most of their land back, um, they're knitting still changes in the way that they for hundreds of years at that point had been knitting to survive and then all of a sudden they're allowed to wear their traditional garments again and but these garments aren't necessarily daily wear anymore a lot of people only wear them for special occasions Mm -hmm. and so in the 1800s 1900s um kilt hose become a thing and that is highly decorative stockings to go with the kilts? To go with the kilts, because to have a fancy kilt and a fancy plaid, you got to have fancy socks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. And so these these kilt hose have wonderful cabled patterns on them. Sometimes they have color work, but most of the time they're white, and they have uh, several different types of like Celtic braids down the front, or like not necessarily Celtic braids because that's Irish, but like yeah. Cabling, intricate Mm -hmm. cabling and beautiful cabling down the front to make them interesting and fancy. Um, But speaking of stockings, at this time, a lot of guilds and uh, trading companies are out of Scotland trading stockings. 
and not just a small amount of stockings. At this point, Scotland is one of the biggest exporters of stockings in Europe. They are exporting uh, dozens, thousands of dozens of pairs, not even just like one sock, pairs of of stockings out of Ireland. And these women, because at some point over the years, women were allowed to knit and then children were allowed to knit because they found out that if more people are knitting, you can make more money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so everybody is starting to knit and it no longer is just a man's craft. It's an everybody craft. Yeah. As men go to do other work, women are still at home making money. So they're knitting these stockings and they build several guilds and several trading companies based around the trading and exporting of socks. And that is specifically in places like Sangahar. Yes. What is what is that? Sangahar is a place. I don't know what it's called in Scotland, but it's kind of like a, a territory. Yeah, like a region or something. And in Sangahar, one, the export of stockings is becoming very, very big. And two, their local style of knitting is becoming popular. So it's a stranded color work that's usually done in two colors, and it's done normally in black and white. Mm, yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, they have like diamond motifs in them, and it's usually like a checkerboard pattern where you'll have a black square and a white square and a black white and a black square and a white square, and it keeps going. Yeah, with whatever picture is in there, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're kind of small, so they don't have huge motifs in the center of these, these squares, but they're really, really fun to look at. It's pleasing to the eye. And oftentimes, they're used to make socks, like, like we said, a lot of socks being made, but also <laughs> mittens and hats. Um, and these mittens also blew up because one of the kings of England purchased a pair and he said these gloves specifically are the best for riding and driving nice and so they were huge outside of scotland as well as inside of scotland because you know it was a regional thing people wore them um but also talking about regional things we get into shetland and fair isle what is shetland well shetland one is a breed of sheep and two is an island in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And three, it's a style of lace. You have Shetland lace. Yeah, it's true. Um, and the Shetland lace is like really intricate, big pieces of lace that are often displayed on these huge, like oftentimes six foot by six foot squares of wood with pegs in them so you can yeah. tension out your lace and mm-hmm. show it off. And those are really popular. One, because they're beautiful and delicate and can be used for a variety of things. And two, they're hardy because Shetland wool is a hardy wool. So Shetland wool is a hardy wool, but the the yarn was really fine, wasn't it? Oh, it was spun incredibly fine. Yeah. It was oftentimes just a single ply. Yeah. And if you were really good at spinning, you could get like two or three plies in there and they would be thread size plies and you would still have a very, very fine yarn. Yeah, it's amazing. It's crazy. I don't knit a lot of lace, but when I look at them, I do have like that feeling of 
I need to oh make that. Oh my God. I want to make that. Yeah. It's so, it's so awe inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have another island, like I mentioned before, which is the Fair Isles. Yeah. Which is something people have probably heard a lot of, uh, cause there's Fair Isle knitting. Mm-hmm. And this is the time where I tell people that the Fair Isles are part of Scotland and they are not <laughs> part of like Sweden or Norway or anything like that. I, I learned that researching for this. Yeah. Me I was too. like, oh my God. Yeah. That was kind of surprising. I, but it is like a Norwegian style. I, I feel like, because Shetlands was part of Norway in like the Middle Ages. So who knows? Was it Shetland or was it Faroe? The Fair Isles. I think it was Shetland. And what I don't understand is how Fair Isle is so popular on Shetland, but it's called Fair Isle. Do you know anything about it? In that? Scotland? Yeah, just in general. Because it's called Fair Isle, but it's they mostly do it in Shetland, right? Or is that yeah, like... yeah, that's actually true because yeah. in Shetland you have places um that were popular that were made popular because uh, like Jameson's yeah, exactly. was made. Yeah. And Jameson's is so good for color work. So yeah. a lot of people take Fair Isle and they kind of equate it to Shetland as well, even though it's its own place. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's not just a style of knitting. It's a place. Um, <laughs> but there are people there. <laughs> there are people there. And we will talk more about that at a different time. Yeah. But Fair Isle, because Shetland wool lends itself so well to Fair Isle, I yeah. think, got absorbed into that culture a little yeah. bit, which yeah. is a little sad, but it happens. Yeah, it makes Because every year we have the Shetland Wool Week oh. uh, hat that comes out yeah. here at the shop, and it's Fair it's Isle. It's Fair Isle, yeah. It's not a lacy hat. Yeah. So <laughs> when you think of... When you think of Shetland, a lot of people do think of Shetland lace, but how many people do you know knit Shetland lace? But then also, how many people do you know knit Fair Isle with Shetland wool? Yeah. Because that's also a strange thing. Shetland isn't the only sheep that exists in Scotland. There's tons of them. Yeah, there's. To name a few of the heritage breeds, there's there's Shetland, there's Sway, there's Cheviot, and there's uh, Scottish blackface. The, the, yeah. the, it has it in the name. Yeah. And they're all sheep that have different purposes, but these are all sheep that people would raise and use the wool to make things with. Mm-hmm. So how did we get away from like recognizing all those different breeds of sheep? Yeah, that's super interesting. It's just, yeah, that's weird to me too. And that people think of like Norway when they hear Fair Isle. I know. Because yeah. you, you, you think of like... um. In my opinion, when I first learned learned about it, I thought about Icelandic sweaters. I was like, that's, that's yeah, Fair yeah. Isle. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. No, that's something entirely different. Entirely different. <laughs> but it is what it is. Well, and isn't part of like Fair Isle, because it's, it's um, those islands are, they get cold too. Like they're not like Iceland, but they get cold and... Something like Fair Isle with like the stranded color work makes it warmer to wear. Kind yes, of? it is. Yeah. It does because um the floats that you catch on the back of the sweater, in the specifically the chest and the neck region. Yeah, they tend to f- because there wasn't any superwash. They tended to felt together, and that created an extra like separate layer almost of wool to trap heat in. Yeah, like so insulation. they were really really warm. Yeah, yeah. 
That's a theme. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we love Shetland. <laughs> we love Shetland. <laughs> I have never once talked bad about Shetland in my life. <laughs> it's a lie. Sometimes I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. What else did you find about Scotland and Shetland and Faroe Island? Well, speaking of sheep breeds, because we we're talking about that just a yeah. moment ago, we could talk a little bit about the briefest history of like spinning. Yeah, spinning wheels. So everybody knows spinning wheels weren't always a thing. Right. Spinning wheels kind of came about in the, I want to say the 15, 1600s. Um, and treadling spinning wheels came about, I want to say, the 17, 1800s. Even later, yeah. yeah. But before that, a lot of people spun with spindles. And mm-hmm. a spindle is just a stick, usually with a whorl, that you spin and you hold the wool and it makes yarn. Yeah. It's a really basic, rudimentary explanation of what a spindle is. Um To give people kind of a reference, the most common spindle these days is a drop spindle. And you can always find them with either a top whorl or a bottom whorl. And a whorl is usually a round disc that kind of balances the stick to spin the wool on. So a lot of spindles you'll see, even if they're not drop spindles, they'll have a whorl of some kind like a Turkish spindle. They have the... Uh, crossbars, which makes a turtle, which is what you call the little ball that you take off of it. And there is, gosh, a million different types of spindles. There's supported spindles where they have a little whirl at the bottom, all of that. The whirl is usually used to create balance. And also for beauty. Yeah, some of they them look are really beautiful. Yeah, some of them yeah. are really, really decorative and pretty. Yeah. Um, but the Scottish spindle specifically doesn't have a whorl. How, like, how does that even work? One end is thicker than the top. And that is unusual yeah. in a spindle. Usually the shaft of a spindle, which is the stick in the middle, is the same thickness from start to end. Yeah. But with a Scottish spindle, one end is heavier. So it weights it that way. Oh, yeah. That's kind of interesting. Do yeah. they still use that now, these days? Or Yeah. It's not as popular, of course, because drop spindling has kind of become the main thing that people use when they want to spin with a spindle. Yeah. Um, but the Scottish spindle still exists. There are still people who use it. And it was a really, really cool uh, like type of spindle. Mm-hmm. It had a little cross at the bottom notched into it. So you would draft out some wool and you would spin it in your hands. And then you would like wrap it around and hook it on the bottom and then do a half hitch at the top. And that's how you would spin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oftentimes, I, I don't know how they do this, but it's said that they're copless, which means that you don't build a cop on it. So you don't wind your yarn onto it. But I don't know how or where they would put the yarn afterward. Yeah, that's kind of odd. I didn't find any explanations, and I couldn't find any videos, which was really, really difficult. So I'd have to kind of play around to get one of my own to see what happens. Yeah, and then kind of see... I'll report back. Yeah. (laughs) In a few weeks. (laughs) I'll just add to my ever-growing collection of fiber craft things. To-do list. My to-do list. I have my fingers in so many pies. (laughs) 
Um, but they were really cool. And so people would use them to herd their sheep. So these heritage breed sheep in lots of different places because certain breeds of sheep do better in different climates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the spindle was used by shepherds with all of these different types of heritage breed sheep who thrive in different climates. And it was easy to take this with, because it doesn't have a, a whorl on it and stick it in a pocket. Yeah, right. Um, so you could walk and spin. You could sit and spin. And you could, when you're done and ready to get up and move, or even if you come up to someone and you have to stop spinning and like have a conversation, you can kind of just put it in a pocket. And when you're ready to do it again, you pull it out and then you start. And then the big question remains, once again, where, where is the yarn? Where does this yarn go? Because I've read in a couple places <laughs> that it's copless, and I'm like, but where does it go? What? Yeah. That's... Do, you, do you ply on the... Maybe you ply on the fly, and then you just kind of like unhook it and move on to the next Done. unplied Done. piece. Because plying on the fly means um, you three-ply your yarn as you spin as you, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I, I just don't know. It's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, like everywhere else, moving on from the spindle, you get people who used big walking wheels, which are the, they're walking wheels and some people call them great wheels because they're the big, huge wheels. They're the ones that look like they have like tractor wheels for yeah, a right. wheel. Yeah. And you spin it with your hand and you walk backward and that's why it's called the walking wheel. And then, of course, they got treadling wheels. And yeah. it's unclear if castle wheels or uh, flax wheels were more popular in Scotland at the time. Going back to knitting after that <laughs> spinning, you get to kind of where we were with England, where machine knitting becomes a thing. New mills and all around like uh, Scotland, you have them in Haddington, you have them in East Lothian, and... You have a framework for knitting exports, like industrial mm-hmm. knitting exports built in Scotland to export to other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the 1800s around this time, you have the formation of everyone's beloved Jameson's, Jameson's Wool Company. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of all the important things that I could think of for Scotland. For Scotland, yeah. That don't overlap with things we're going to talk about in a more in-depth episode like Fair Isle Mm -hmm. or eventually perhaps uh, Shetland Shetland Lace but that's a that's a maybe (laughs) um yeah that's a lot though it is it's a lot um and then you kind of we kind of move on to Ireland Ireland unfortunately because it's the last on our list has a lot of overlap with England and Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as knitting goes, um, cable work and Celtic knots as motifs are re- were originated in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone says Aaron knit sweaters originated in Ireland. Not super true, but yeah, it we is kinda kind of found some information about that that was. Kind of interesting. Yeah, you found it specifically, and I was like, "Oh, really?" Yeah, I. So there, um, it's kind of hard to tell, like when, where Aran knitting, so the cable knitting from the Aran Islands, where it originated, 
But they think actually a woman traveled to the Americas, to America, and um, learned the some cable motifs back in America, and then came back to Ireland and started knitting gansies, so fishermen's sweaters, with um, these new motifs that she had learned. And people started copying her, asking her, like, hey, how, did, how are you doing that? Um, and that's kind of how... Aaron knitting started. And it, you, you, you bring up the fact that like people would ask about yeah. patterns. And I think that's really interesting because a lot in the olden, in the olden days, <laughs> ye olds knitting, uh, people didn't have patterns for a long time. Written yeah. pattern, patterns were not a thing and they weren't standardized. Yeah. They were all kind of like really different from each other. Even if they were printed, you had to kind of figure out everyone's different shorthand. Yeah. But people would pick up knitting and just remember it, like patterns in their head, by and like learning by learning from the people around them, like their mothers and their grandmothers yeah, their and grandmas. their aunts yeah. Yeah. and their neighbors. Yeah, women in the neighborhood and stuff like that. It was more of a community thing that way. Yeah, and I j- I just think it's kind of amazing because I can't remember a pattern two days after I knit it. No. Yeah. Like, ask me to do a cable, and I'm like, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't. I forgot. You you just forgot what cardigan you you were yeah, making. Yeah, I know. We were talking about it, and you were like, "Hey, you're knitting the Felix cardigan, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm totally knitting the Felix cardigan. I'm not knitting the Felix She's cardigan. Not. I'm knitting the Bonnie cardigan." Um, and that's just the name. That's not even the pattern. No, the it's actual, yeah. no, it's yeah, it's a um, raglan sweater. Yeah. It's very simple. But we'll see that too next week with the with the Gansies, um, the fisherman sweaters is how people learned how to knit those, and you know there weren't really patterns for those either. Yeah, there was a lot of regional differences, but we'll deep yeah we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that next time. Yeah, exactly. So I believe this is it for us this week. Yeah, all of our sources will be listed in our show notes, mm-hmm. and thank you all for listening. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, and I'm Blair. I'm Denise. And thank you for listening to Spinning a Yarn's Tale, brought to you by You and I Yarns and Jay Atlas. Washington. Yeah. See you next time.